Our Heavenly Father, we thank You tonight for the church of Jesus Christ that He has purchased at the high cost of His own blood. We praise You for the wisdom of Your purposes, that You who could have called us simply to live individual Christian lives here and there spread throughout this city and throughout the world, have called us together into the unity of the fellowship of the body of Jesus Christ, that You have given us to one another, that we might, as Christ's body, upbuild ourselves and one another in love, and that You have given us gifts not for ourselves, but for each other. We praise You for the impressive weaving of Your grace that has brought together the members of Your body in this place, that You have given us the gifts that we need, that You have given us one another, that this evening we are found in Your presence, and that we find that this place is truly sweet and awesome to us. Thank You for the free flow of Your grace to us in Christ, and the flow of Your love among us by Your Holy Spirit. We pray as we turn to Your Word that You would teach us, that You would speak to us from Your own mouth, that we may hear Your voice, that Your Word will be applied by Your Holy Spirit to different areas of our lives in different ways, and yet with one grand purpose of building us up together in a glorious unity, so that in this city there may be set in display through your church the marvels of your character and the wondrous grace of your Son and the saving energy of your Holy Spirit. So feed us, Father, we pray, for Jesus Christ our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, our passage this evening is in Romans chapter 15. We are reading this evening the first 13 verses, and you'll find the passage in the Pew Bible on page 949 if you'd like to follow along in an English Standard Version, which we use together here. And we come to the third of the sermons on Romans chapters 14 and 15, in which Paul has been dealing with the fellowship of the church in Rome particularly, but teaching them principles that apply to every fellowship of God's people in the way in which he has spoken about the relationships between those who are, as he describes them, weak on the one hand, weak in faith, that is to say, they are restricted in their exercise of faith from the liberties that Jesus Christ has given to them. And those who are strong in faith, who have been able to see the implications of the gospel and everything that those implications sets the Christian's conscience free from. And so we hear God's Word in chapter 15 and verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak 
and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol you. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Many of us in the congregation I know have at different times in our lives taken vacation to the United Kingdom. And if you have been blessed to have such a vacation in that country where it never rains and the sky is always blue, you almost certainly have experienced in a hotel or in that great English institution the bed and breakfast, which always struck me as a rather strange phenomenon for which to pay good money when I was a little boy and all you got was a bed and breakfast and apparently nothing in between. But if you've had that experience, you have almost certainly been confronted at breakfast time by what is known as the full English breakfast. The full English breakfast. The emphasis, as you will discover if you order it, is on the adjective fool. If you have the full English breakfast, you're incapable of rapid activity in the rest of the day. And if you have it, one of the items you will see on your plate is circular and black. Circular and black. And if you inquire of the discerning host, what is this thing, your host will say, scorning your ignorance, that is black pudding. Now, black pudding is a delicacy much enjoyed in Northern Europe, and most Northern European languages have one expression or another to describe this thing called black pudding. 
the Swedish people are the most honest. They call it blood pudding. That is to say, this is made partly of blood. Thereby hangs a tale. I remember years ago, now, uh, at the end of a service, sanctuary was empty. I think it had been a blessed service, or at least I thought that until I got to the church door. I thought I'd shaken hands with everybody and everybody was away. But there was a small group of people and their voices were being raised. And one espying me called out to me and said to me, Christians can eat black pudding, can't they? Well, my sources for black pudding tell me it's actually very difficult to buy in an American supermarket. So, you might well wonder, why would a Christian even think about eating this blood pudding? But of course, the issue was precisely the blood. And among this little group of Christians, I found a number of them who were insistent on the fact that since the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 had sent out this message to the early Christian churches that they were to abstain from immorality, and they were also to abstain from blood, there were some of these Christians who believed that Christians today should live, as it were, at the foot of the letter of the Council of Jerusalem, and therefore Christians should never eat black pudding. And there were others who were saying, but that was counsel given to the churches in the days when there was tension between Jewish believers who had come from a life of observing the Old Testament law, which of course had forbidden the consumption of blood, and Gentile believers for whom you could eat black pudding or anything in blood all day long as far as they were concerned. And in a miniature, if somewhat humorous way, that was exactly the tension. And I can tell you there was real tension in this conversation among these Christian people. This was exactly the kind of tension with which the Apostle Paul was seeking to deal here in Romans chapters 14 and 15. We know that there had been Christians in the Roman church of a Jewish background, some of them Paul refers to in Romans chapter 16. And it looks to me as though the church, once the Jews had been thrown out of Rome in A.D. 49 at the command of Claudius, because there had been very great tension, even rioting, over the uh, person of Crestus that most uh, scholars think is a reference to the name of Jesus. And, and so the Roman church had become strong with Gentile believers for whom the Old Testament law was not part of their background and even more significantly not part of their basic life instincts. And sensitive Jewish believers who had been so reared in the practices of the old covenant law that it was beyond what they could allow their consciences to permit, that they would even touch 
food that wasn't kosher, that they would uh, treat us just any other day, one of the great holy days of the Old Testament calendar. And so we have this situation where there are believers who feel free to eat anything and free to treat all days the same, and other believers whose consciences are sensitive to certain foods and whose consciences are sensitive to certain days. As Paul describes them clearly, there are the weak believers whose conscience at this point is intensely strong, which in parenthesis reminds us that strong conscience is not necessarily the same thing as strong faith. And those who were strong in faith, and who realized that when the Lord Jesus had made all foods clean, He really meant all foods. And when Jesus Christ had fulfilled all the rituals of the old covenant law given for a temporary period to Moses. Christian believers were no longer restrained and restricted to the observation of certain days or the eating of a restricted number of foods. And it's here right at the beginning of chapter 15 that the Apostle Paul makes very clear that although he himself is a Jewish convert, he understands this. He has seen the gospel clearly, and how in Jesus Christ everything that had been put in place for a temporary period and a temporary purpose between the coming of Moses and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, had simply folded all that up and carried it away. And so, for the Apostle Paul, one of the striking experiences of becoming a Christian was a glorious new freedom, freedom from the burden of the guilt of his sin, freedom from the dominion of the powers of darkness, but also a freedom from that mosaic pattern of life that had been built upon the moral commandments of God, but had given a very distinctive special imprint upon this people. And that that imprint had now been raised from his conscience. And so he was, as he says, Christ's free man. Some of you who know the name of Professor F. F. Bruce will remember the title of his study of the Apostle Paul, Paul the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. And of course, we've seen in Romans there are dangers in freedom. Paul is concerned here that one of the dangers of freedom among Christians in Rome and in other places is that we may use our freedom in such a way that we destroy the faith of a fellow Christian believer. Often in the history of the Christian church, the kind of thing that Paul speaks about here 
has been described as the adiaphora, the things that are indifferent. You can do them or you can refrain from doing them. And perhaps that's a good way of describing them. But notice what Paul is saying, and we've seen this right the way through chapter 14, and it comes home again in chapter 15. The Christian believer can never take an attitude of indifference to his fellow believers with respect to the things that are indifferent. And it's this that he's focusing our gaze on here in chapter 15 when he speaks about the fact that the strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. It's interesting, isn't it, that he actually calls them the failings of the weak. And he's saying now, strong ones, you're the ones who have an obligation to the weak. And the form of his argument in this section, I think, is this. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, he presents his basic exhortation. And then in verses 3 through 13, he provides us with a marvelous gospel explanation. That is to say, he is not simply giving us another commandment that we are, as it were, to struggle with in our own strength, but he's rooting this exhortation in gospel truth. And you'll notice how the first part of his explanation, which begins in verse 3, leads to a prayer wish in verses 5 through 6. And the second part of his explanation, which begins in verse 8 and goes on through verse 12, then leads to another prayer wish in verse 13. So there is an exhortation briefly given and then an explanation at some length as to why this exhortation is so important. First of all, then, Paul's basic exhortation. And I think it's important for us to notice that at this point, Paul appeals to the strong. That's even more significant because he speaks about the failings of the weak. So, in a way, perhaps if you and I were the Apostle Paul, our tendency at this point would be to say, the strong are all right. What I need to do is to direct my exhortation to the weak. Come on now, weak. Get with the program. But it's characteristic of the Apostle Paul for a reason he makes very clear almost immediately that he addresses this obligation to those who are strong, to those who have the liberated conscience. And he does so for this reason. Because if the weak behave like the strong, they sin. Because as he's explained to us, they defile their consciences by doing something their uninstructed conscience tells them not to do. And if they do that, says Paul, they fall into sin. So the weak cannot do what the strong do without falling into sin, unless, of course, eventually their consciences are instructed and liberated. But mark this. The strong may refrain just like the weak. The strong may use days just like the weak, 
without sinning. They are free to use, and they are free to abstain from using, and they don't lose their liberty in the action. Now, we saw something of that order last week. I want to repeat it this evening. The moment I need to exercise my liberty is the moment I've lost my liberty. The moment I find myself in this situation and I say, but I must eat meat to exercise my liberty, that's the moment in which I've lost my liberty to the must that has become my bondage. And it's for this reason Paul addresses himself to the strong, because in this situation, until the weak are brought through until they experience the fullness of their liberty in Jesus Christ. The weak cannot solve the situation. Now, remember that, brothers and sisters, in every situation, because the tendency of the strong is to say, but I'm the one who's strong. She's the one who's weak. She's the one who should do something about it. But that's the world's way. It's never, ever the gospel way. The world's way is might is right. The gospel way is might supports the weak. And this is how he puts it. I think myself, probably his words should be translated like this. We who are strong have an obligation not to bear with the weak, but to bear the weak. It's exactly the same language he used earlier on in Galatians chapter 6 when he said to the Galatian Christians, now bear one another's burdens. He didn't mean bear with one another's burdens. Okay, I'll put up with this as long as something happens eventually. No, this is a matter not simply of the strong tolerating the weak. This is a matter of the strong bending down and picking up the weak, carrying the weak in his infirmity. This is the principle that gave rise to the immortal song recorded by the Hollies originally and then re-recorded by one of your own poets, Neil Diamond. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Now, that's the gospel life. The strong bear the weak. The strong carry the weak. And the strong, I think it's implicit in this, the strong patiently commit themselves to not letting the weak remain weak forever, but growing strong. Now, why should he call these people weak? This is interesting, because these are people with strong consciences. Why should he call them weak? Because a conscience that is not yet fully instructed by the gospel is a conscience that tends in its very nature, whether logically or simply psychologically, it tends in its very nature actually to become increasingly sensitive. 
And most of us have met over the years numbers of Christians who have been just like this. The sensitivity of their consciences, uninstructed by the whole truth of the gospel, have led them to an increasingly sensitive lifestyle so that in a sense not only do they not enjoy the liberties of the gospel, they don't enjoy any liberties at all. John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, has a stunning passage in the third book of his Institutes on this very point where he's describing and discussing what Christian liberty really is. And he, he speaks about this. He says, uh, he says, we think these things are trivial, but they can actually be very significant in the life of an individual. Listen to what he says. If you'll just patiently try and follow what he says, he's not nearly as difficult to understand, actually, as you might think. He was, after all, a minister. He says, now these matters are more important than is commonly believed. For when consciences once ensnare themselves, and the point he's making is once your conscience is bound to something, some form of behavior from which the gospel has set it free, when consciences once ensnare themselves, they enter a long and inextricable maze, not easy to get out of. Listen to this. Now, this is very 16th century, but you can think of 21st century applications. If a Christian man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about hemp. Finally, doubt will even arise over tau, for he will turn over in his mind whether he can sup without napkins or go without a handkerchief. If any man should consider daintier food unlawful, in the end, he will not be at peace before God when he eats either black bread or common victuals, while it occurs to him that he could sustain his body on even coarser foods. If he boggles, I wonder what the Latin for boggle is. He wrote this in Latin. If he boggles at sweet wine, if he boggles at sweet wine, now, that's not a very good translation. That does not mean if he boggles because of sweet wine, but if, if he has this sensitive conscience, that sweet wine, I, I don't, Christians shouldn't, be, Christians shouldn't be drinking that sweet wine. Calvin says he will not with clear conscience drink even flat wine, and finally he will not dare touch water if sweeter and cleaner than other water. To sum up, he will come to the point of considering it wrong to step upon a straw across his path, as the saying goes. You see, it's possible to be a Christian who falls prey to a form of obsessive, compulsive spirituality. Now, of course, it's absolutely vital that the gospel runs down into the very details of our lives, but that's the point Paul is making here. The reason the person of strong conscience turns out to be a person of weak faith is because with respect to these behavior patterns that he has a strong conscience, the gospel has actually set him free. 
And if he doesn't enter into that freedom of the gospel, then he's likely Pharisee-like to start extending the things that he must do or mustn't do and must touch and mustn't touch and must eat and mustn't eat until he loses the freedom of the gospel altogether. Which is the reason why I don't think it would be consistent with what Paul is saying to say to the strong, now bear with them, bear with them a little, you know, and you stand at the, at the back and you watch them and you bear with them, but actually you're despising them for their weakness. No, it's carry them. Carry them in and carry them on. And so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous thing to see this. It takes great wisdom, doesn't it, to see this? takes the understanding that uh, Christians move at different speeds in their discovery of the fullness and the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, woe betide me if I flaunt my freedoms in front of a brother or sister who has none of those freedoms and incite them to the same pattern of life that eventually will destroy their sense of freedom altogether. Now, you notice how Paul puts it. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Notice that. Not let each of us please his neighbor as though we were man-pleasers, but let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The Christian believer is not a self-pleaser, nor in that sense a people-pleaser, but a God-pleaser and a people-builder. Now, that's a word for any of us who believe that we are among the strong. And Paul deals with a somewhat similar, although in details, different situation writing to the Corinthians. He comes back again and again to this. The fundamental question for me to ask is not, am I free to do this? The fundamental question for me to ask is, is this going to build up my brother, going to build up my sister for whom Jesus Christ died. And so, you see, this is not simply good counsel. These are not just church laws, you know, uh, that need to be put into place. This is a gospel-driven priority for the Christian believer. And that becomes clear when Paul turns from his exhortation to his explanation. And as I say, his explanation comes, I think, in two sections, both of them beginning with the word for. Notice in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Again in verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. So you see what he's now doing. He is, as it were, drawing this exhortation back into the resources that the gospel gives us to understand why we're receiving this exhortation and to empower us in fulfilling this exhortation. These are not common sense motives, 
as though Paul were saying, you'll never get on well together as long as you're squabbling about food and days. What he's actually saying is, if you're squabbling in this way, despising others or condemning others, it's because you haven't yet fully grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. So, first of all, in his explanation, why do we do this? Answer, because our Lord Jesus Christ has given us a model. Verse 3, for Christ did not please Himself. It's His whole mindset, isn't it? Philippians 2, 5 to 11, let this mind be in you which you have in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, didn't count the, the equality He had with God a reason why He should be treated as a special case with special liberties and dignities, but He took upon Him the servant form coming in the likeness of human flesh, coming and dying our death, even death on the cross. And you notice that he quotes from the 69th Psalm, which interestingly for the New Testament writers is the great Psalm of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he puts it like this, as it is written, Psalm 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Why is, that, why is that a motivation? Well, you see what he's saying, don't you? He's saying, if the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of glory, in all eternity surrounded with angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, worshipped from the very beginning of creation, the one in whom all things hold together, if He came down to this sad and dark and sorry earth and born bore reproaches. Is it such a big thing for you to bear the weaknesses of your fellow Christians? Doesn't the gospel change all that? Aren't you willing to refrain from exercising your liberties for the sake of your sister or brother if Jesus Christ was willing to bear reproaches for the sake of your salvation? And then he adds what I think is a kind of parenthesis. As one scholar suggests, if we were writing this today, we'd probably put it in a footnote. He's just quoted Psalm 69, verse 9. And then he adds, incidentally, everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And then he begins to pray. But just before we notice what he prays, notice something very interesting. I wonder if you notice this in our reading. He says that it's through the Scriptures that we have hope. And then very strikingly, in verse 13, right at the end, he says, it's through the Holy Spirit that we have hope. Well, which is it? Answer, of course it's both. It's through the Scriptures 
that the Holy Spirit gives us hope. And so he begins to pray. He begins to pray that because we've got this kind of God, may the God of endurance and encouragement, you see? Why, why do I respond to my fellow Christians in their weakness with patience and encouragement? Because my God is a God of patience and encouragement. Think of how He's endured with me. Think of how He's borne my burdens. How can I not reach out to my weak brother or sister and do the same? And do you notice that when that happens, worship is produced? The implication being when that doesn't happen, worship begins to vanish. That together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 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 welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's the motivation again. What am I doing not welcoming somebody for whom Christ has died when Christ Himself has welcomed them? If I only understood the gospel, Paul is saying, if you only understood that Christ has welcomed them. I mean, think about the, think about the person, don't dare say it, but think about the person in the fellowship you actually find most difficult because you're either weak or strong, and you'd like just to sort them out to make them the same as yourself. Won't you welcome them? because Christ has welcomed you. So we are given a model in Jesus Christ. And then, in verses 8 through 13, he says we are given a motivation in Jesus Christ, for I tell you that Christ became a servant, a table servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. You see, he's shown us that Christ is a model, and now he shows us what it is that Christ had in view. And this is, this is actually, you know, Paul did think these things. Granted, he thought these things under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but he did think these things. This is absolutely delicious when you see what he's doing here. Because you see, most of this section is quotation from the Bible, isn't it? And do you see what he's saying by these quotations from the Bible? He's saying this has been God's purpose all along. This is not some novelty I'm talking about. This is not because God has gone to plan B. We're in this mess of the strong and the weak. And so he says, Christ has done this to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and remember the promise given to the great patriarch Abraham that in his seed all the nations, that means the Gentiles would be blessed in order, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. 
And then he gives us a series of quotations. In verse 9, he gives a citation from Psalm 18, verse 49. And another citation in verse 11 from Psalm 117, verse 1. That is to say, from the part of the Old Testament Scriptures that the Jews called the writings. Then in verse 10, a citation from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, from a part of the Old Testament Scriptures that was called the law. And you see where he's going, don't you? And then a citation in verse 12 from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, from the part of the Old Testament Scriptures the Jews called the prophets. The whole Bible for the Jews was the law, the prophets, and the writings. And what Paul is really saying subliminally here by his choice of quotations is wherever you go in the law or the prophets or the writings, the purpose of God has always been the same, that God fulfills His promises to Abraham with a view to bringing the Gentiles into the same fellowship into which He has brought believing children of Abraham. It's always been His purpose. It is His great purpose. Ever since the calling of Abraham, God's focus has been on bringing Jew and Gentile together in the gospel and growing Jew and Gentile together in the freedoms of the gospel and in the joy of the gospel so that this may be, as it were, the eighth wonder of the world that God in Jesus Christ has brought together these totally alienated groups of people as they've come to trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to effect this, the Lord Jesus Christ became a deacon. He became the servant, you notice, to the circumcised in order that He might bring in through His faithfulness and atoning death Gentiles into the one body of Jesus Christ. And that's why when He now turns again to a prayer wish in verse 13, He prays that the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, we don't have time to go into this in detail, but just notice the big words in that prayer wish. What are they? Peace, joy, hope. Does that remind you of something, those of us who have been tracking all the way through Romans? Of what the apostle had said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, about the great first fruits of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope of sharing the glory of God. You see what he's saying now? 
He's saying what we came to know as individuals through faith in Jesus Christ is what God, as it were, pours out upon the whole believing community as they're brought together in this glorious unity of God's people. It's as though he's saying, let that peace and joy and hope that you have experienced as an individual flood over the whole fellowship and drown out those tendencies in your life if you are strong to look down your nose at the weak and if you are weak to condemn the strong for what they are doing. Luxuriate in the grace of the gospel, he's saying, and that will put all these things into their secondary place in your fellowship because every eye will be fixed on Christ, the source of these blessings. And every member of the fellowship will look upon one another, not first of all being drawn to the things that make us different at different places in our spiritual pilgrimage, but to the great central thing for each of us, that if Christ has died for this brother, if Christ has died for this sister, and welcome them, then I too will be prepared to live for them. Great theory, isn't it? But uh, as eventually becomes clear, Paul is writing as a pastor. And if you take a sneak peek at where this letter ends, all those names that usually in your Bible reading you pass over and say, let's get on to 1 Corinthians. It looks as though it's much more interesting. There are almost 30 of them take on an amazing significance. He actually knew the people to whom he was writing. He wasn't writing as some ivory tower theologian. He was writing as a pastor because he cared for the unity of the fellowship in the church at Rome because he knew that only when they were united in Jesus Christ would they be able with one voice and with one heart to glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring Him glory in the city of Rome. So here's the question. Is there a single Christian that whenever you think of them or see them, your tendency is to look down your nose and despise them for the life pattern that doesn't enjoy the freedom you enjoy? Or is there a fellow believer, and whenever you think of them or watch them, you condemn them for the holy liberty that they enjoy in these indifferent things? And Paul is saying, that's not Jesus-like. That's not Jesus-like. Come on now, won't you live for everyone for whom Christ died? Well, won't you?
Won't you give up for those who are weak when you think of all that Christ gave to become your Savior? And when you think of what He gave in order to become their Savior, how dare you condemn them? How dare you despise them? But when the gospel of Christ permeates our hearts and brings all that muck to the surface and begins to skim it off the surface so that we are brought to welcome one another, then, says Paul, then in Rome, you will become a people who glorify God and who enjoy the privileges of the gospel. Well, that's practical enough, isn't it? Go to it. Heavenly Father, thank You for the cleansing influence and instruction of Your Word. We pray, Father, for some of us are deeply sensitive Christians who, who tremble at the thought of doing anything that would offend You, and we know we need our consciences to be instructed not by habit or tradition, but by Your Word. And some of us have found the gospel to be gloriously liberating to us. And we know that our danger is to flaunt the liberties that You've given to us. And we pray that Jesus, like we may lay everything that You have given to us at Your feet in tribute. And tonight, our Father, in the light of these words, we think of one another supremely as those for whom our dear Lord Jesus shed His precious blood. And we pray that we may ever see one another through those blood-sprinkled lenses of the gospel. And first of all, see all that He has done for each of us, and then see that it is only in Him that we are united, and then learn that since the Lord Jesus has welcomed us, we are called to welcome one another. And so we pray that not only from our lips, but from the bottom of our hearts, we may be welcoming Christians to our fellow believers. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.